Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. I'm back here in the studio after a week away. I'm excited to be here at the end of the week with all of you for another weekly market recap featuring my very good friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts. Lance, how you doing, buddy? Well, it's a, it's a Friday, so that's always good news. And uh, just beware, there is a lawnman approaching nearby. I can hear his lawnmower, so <laughs> okay. we, may, we may get a bit of weed whacking somewhere along the way here. All right. I can't. And if it gets too bad, that's what the edit function's for. I need to yeah. apologize, too. I'm still a little scraggly from having been away this week um, at my mom's service and then visiting family while I was back east. Uh, so uh, forgive the scruffiness, folks. Um, but lots to catch up on, Lance. Um, so let's just dive right into it. Um, okay, so another up week for the markets. Um, basically, all indices were up this week. Uh, in the S&P and the NASDAQ, I was looking at year-to-date charts, Lance, like we are back to just sort of the dependable and exorable 45-degree trajectory yep. month yep. after month after month now. Yep, Absolutely. Uh, and and it, was, it was interesting. I was doing a Fox Business interview earlier this week um, with Charles Payne, and he had this chart of annual returns. And he was like, "Look, you know, when we have normally when we have bear markets, it's a very long period of time, you know, before you get back to all time highs." And and I, and I stopped him. I was like, "Yeah, look at that chart again. You know, when you had the bear market in 1974, it was years before you got back to all time highs. 2000." years before you got back to all-time highs, 2008, years before you got back to all-time highs. And that's the difference, as we've talked about before here on the show, is that is the hallmark difference between a bear market and a correction. And right now, we are on track. We've had a 78.6% retracement of the decline. That's some technical mumbo-jumbo stuff. Don't worry about it, but it's a Fibonacci retracement scale. And when you have a 78.6% retracement, you always go to all-time highs. So we are on track to hit all-time highs by the end of this year. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to have a correction in the next month or so, but you know that would be a buying opportunity. And we're, we're likely between December, January, February, March, somewhere in there, we're probably going to be talking about all-time highs on the market. Okay. So let me ask you this then. Do you think that that is the likely outcome at this point in time? Technically, yes. Technically, yes. Okay. And look, we're going to talk about a lot of the macro data and whatnot, but at the end of the day, the markets yeah. are what the markets are. Yeah. You know, I, I look at this trajectory, you know, this this just 45 degree, you know, ramp that the markets have been doing pretty yeah. much all year, certainly since March. And it it does just look and feel like the markets did, you know, going into 2000, uh, 2020 before the pandemic hit and certainly afterwards, right? Where it just feels like, it feels like a QE market, right? right. It feels like this rising tide uh, of, of stimulus and liquidity just, just pushing prices up. And we've been so conditioned to that over the past, you know, 13 years or so. Now, technically we don't have a QE market right now, right? right? It's, it's interesting. What, why are we seeing this type of behavior, even though we don't necessarily have the underlying liquidity, or, or maybe we do. You know, you and I have talked recently about liquidity and that, you know, it, it switched from net negative to, to net positive around October of last year. Is there a rising tide that's pulling this up or is it something else? Well, that's actually uh, part of the subject of this weekend's newsletter, which is talking about 
this turn in both sentiment as well, not just consumer sentiment, but also investor sentiment, both of those are improving sharply. And one of the, the things that we've got to remember is that there is a lot of government spending going on right now. We've had a, a very sharp rise in government spending over the course of the last really six months, the last two quarters. And that's that Inflation Reduction Act, 1.7 trillion. That's hitting hitting municipalities and cities. This is why you're seeing industrial stocks, material stocks, transportation stocks. That's why they're doing so well, is because there's a lot of money flowing, you know, into the economy from that. That's a. That's one reason why we're not seeing a big slowdown in the economy. That's why we're we haven't had that recession everybody keeps talking about. Um, but that's also why you're seeing an improvement in you know some of the economic data now you know when you take a look at services as an example they've already turned they've already turned back up into expansion um, territory manufacturing hasn't yet but services tend to lead manufacturing so you know it'll be interesting in the next couple of months three months we may be talking about an improvement in some of the economic data and everybody's going to go what the hell is happening here where was the recession and that's because we still have so much liquidity. You know, we have still a lot of monetary supply sitting around the economy, and of course, a lot of federal spending. Now, there's a caveat to that, which is these student loan repayments. If those actually have to restart, and the Biden administration can't figure out a way to work around the Supreme Court decision, then that's certainly going to put a damper on retail sales later this year. So, some of this can certainly change with you know that type of an impact or if there's a change to the economic environment but right now uh technically the the markets are doing fine and fundamentally we're pretty far into a a quote unquote economic bear cycle at points where normally you start to see improvement okay um so let me ask you this but just leading back here for a second so like uh you know, we had the we had the pandemic hit, and uh, you know, we lost I don't know a gazillion jobs. I mean, I think like tens of millions of jobs uh, overnight, practically. Um, and everybody thought that we were going to have the worst depression ever, right? And then we we spent all this money, and lo and behold, we got all time highs in the market, and you know, now all those jobs have come back and whatever, right? And and now, even though we're not passing we're not technically doing monetary stimulus anymore and and technically it's getting harder to pass fiscal stimulus we do have the approved stimulus of the um the inflation reduction act that you mentioned right and that's the tune of almost two trillion dollars um so that's hitting the economy now and, and maybe that's keeping us out of recession and again continuing to push stocks up so i mean if you're a policymaker or heck even a voter you know can you just conclude from this that just like, hey, we should just always use the magic checkbook and our problems always all go away? Like, well, what's the what's the risk in this story here? Well, from the you got to remember, the average person doesn't understand economics. Right. So. Right. You know, they, and they're just concerned about running their daily lives. So, sure. If yeah. you got to borrow some more or stimulate some more, go ahead, right? Right. Well, and, and and really, you know, what's happened in in the in the broader economy? And just take a look at what's going on on social media. You know, as, as a good example of this, I mean, it's just it's it's just proliferated social media. It's capitalism sucks. Um, you know, nothing's fair. The rich people have all the money, and you know, I just want my share. And this is why we have demand. You know, look, you know, California right now is having to deal with this whole reparations deal that is going to cost. 
billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And nobody's even concerned about where the money has to come from. It's just that we should give these people money. And, 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 this, is the, and this is the situation we've got ourselves into is that the vast majority of voters don't care. Well, they don't understand basic economics. They don't understand where the money has to come from. They don't realize they're paying for this stuff themselves. And this is why the Democrats rely so heavily on government handouts and, and you know, child support payments and you know, child care spending and you know, whatever kind of spending, you know, paid parental leave. You know, you look at all the, the Democratic platform, none of it is about fiscal responsibility. It's about how to give voters more money, because if I give voters more money, they'll vote for me. And nobody cares on the voting side about where that money has come from, because people think it just magically appears the government just, you know, just, you know, they just got this money, so they have to give it to me. They don't realize it comes from tax revenue. The interest expense on the debt is going to exceed a trillion dollars over the next uh, couple of quarters because of this issuance of money we're going to do to catch up with the TGA funding. And we're now going to have more money going out just to cover interest expense, Social Security and welfare um, than we actually have coming in in tax revenue. And tax revenues are declining rather sharply here, which is a potential recessionary uh, indicator we can talk about later. But, uh, you know, to, to your point, you know, the average person doesn't realize where the money comes from. They don't understand basic economics. All they know is that life isn't fair. Life isn't treating me well. I can't make ends meet. Housing costs are out of control, so I can't afford the housing. And you can trace all of their ills right back to policy. You know, you can trace the student loan problem right back to Obama's policies. You can trace the housing problem right back to the government and Federal, uh, and federal Reserve policies. So every problem that we have in society today can be directly traced back to political and monetary and physical choices that we make in, in the upper echelons, but nobody goes, oh, well, that's the cause, so let's not do that anymore. No, we just wanna keep having that, even though it's destroying the economic stability of the society. Well, so let me just stick with this for a minute. <laughs> um, you know, as we said last week, the. The, the, the bulls are coming out of the woodworks now um, saying, hey, you guys have been too cautious, right? You've been worried about this recession. It hasn't materialized. We have this massive bull market run. Sure, they can point to the stock charts now and say, guys, look, we're, we're back to easy street, the street we lived on for much of the past, you know, since the great financial crisis. Uh, and you guys just don't get it, right? You're missing out. And um, look, they're, they're certainly welcome to do that. And, 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 and they're right in terms of just pointing to the tape and the tape is doing what the tape is doing. But that mentality, right? You, you and I, we spent a lot of time looking at the macro data and thinking ahead of, of where this could all end, right? But somebody might say, hey, if you're too early, it's the same thing as being wrong. Could they just say, look, this is a problem down the road. Maybe, maybe after we're gone down the road, Right. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like eating your seed corn in the winter or burning your 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 furniture for warmth when the winter first arrives. It feels fine for a while. The, the problem only comes when you run out. Right. And somebody might say, look. We could keep this going for so long that anybody who's 40 plus right now, it's not going to be their problem. Right. Um, I, I'm just curious, and I don't necessarily, well, to be clear, I, I don't espouse this line of thinking, but I want us to explore it for a second, just to sort of challenge our assumptions here. You know, is there enough 
we talk about the pig and the python with with you know all the stimulus that was put in post pandemic but is there enough pig just sort of in the national the python of the national economy and the nation's finances where could we keep doing this for a long time and and things go fine for most of the folks that are watching this video you've got to define what fine is i mean japan has been doing this for 50 years and they're fine Right. Those right? people that started that policy, they're they're dying now. So the, the yeah. consequences are missing them, right? Yeah, right, right. But they're they're fine. Now you look at the the up and coming youth, you think it's bad here, go live in Japan. It's really bad, you know, for the youth there. They're they, you know, they're not forming relationships because they can't find a job. They're living with parents because they're no other place to go. You know, it's not great economically, but they haven't imploded. And this and this comes back to the basic, you know, this is the problem that investors face. You know, I can make you a very bearish case over the next 20 or 30 years about how this is going to play out. And it's going to play out that way. I mean, that's just a function of of choices we've made and the and the endemic impact of what's going to happen with debt and deficits. That's just there, there's no way around that. It's just going to happen. But, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, most a lot of people are going to be dead and, you know, or they're way past the point of you know, they, they've missed so much of building wealth and the opportunities there to build wealth that, you know, they, they have really damaged themselves far more than they, they would have just having, you know, trying to avoid this big cra- crash. And this is the same problem we've seen. I mean, you know, when you take a look at where people that are extremely negative, negatively sentiment wise, and you look at how their assets are allocated, they're killing themselves in terms of what their future wealth is going to look like and their ability to supply and 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 provide for themselves in the future on this assumption that the dollar's going to crash and the world's coming to an end and you know I've got to have all my money in this type of asset and yet they're missing these returns of growing their capital that is available to them now and they could be building wealth now and when look these these events when they occur right you're not going to wake up one morning and the news headline is going to be, last night the dollar crashed. It's all over, guys. Sorry. That, that's not going to happen. You're going to see this stuff coming months and months and months, years in advance, right? There's going to be, this is a, a kind of a, a, a boiling frog situation. You're going to see these things occur over very long periods. But in the short term time frame, there's going to be great opportunities to make money. We've got an opportunity to make money right now. We need to be making money. The technicals say right now the markets are going to head to an all-time high. If we're going to have a correction, we are, and and that's going to be a three to a five or a ten percent correction. It could be it could be significant, and that's going to be a great buying opportunity. But when we start to have that correction, all the bears are going to come back out and say, "See, I told you that was a bull trap." No, that's just a correction within this bull market that we're now back into because we are now clearly back into a bull market. Technically, fundamentally, we're all back into a bull market. So we've got to we've got to participate in that in terms of managing our assets. It doesn't mean you've got to go balls to the wall in terms of risk, but it certainly doesn't mean that you need to have all your money hiding out in cash, waiting for this eventual you know kind of breakdown in the economy. We'll have plenty of time to see that coming, where we can reduce risk in portfolios, raise cash, do those type of things. All right, and on that point, Lance, um, I do want to revisit a little bit um, your S and P chart that we pulled up last week. That we said we're just going to kind of make a regular revisitation of the show. To your point, sure. there are key technical indicators that you look at. A lot of the moving averages um, that will tell us when we're going wrong out of the, bear, the the bull market, yeah. right? And, and and that stuff doesn't just change overnight. You just don't 
plummet below the 200 moving day average overnight, right? right? So we'll, we'll see that in motion and be able to start hopefully taking advanced positioning if we need to. Yeah. Um, so I'll move off this in just a second, but, um, you know, I've just been reflecting. So again, I was, I was uh, back East dealing with my mom's affairs, uh, given her passing. And I was reminded of a, a conversation I had a few years ago. Um, my mom did, did not have, uh, she, she ended her life with no assets, with no income. She was financially dependent upon my brother and I. And at, at one point um, I, I looked into seeing if we could get her social security wages adjusted higher. And uh, it's kind of interesting how social security works. And it's, you, you can, my mother was married several times. So we we looked at one of her past husbands and said, actually, you might be able to claim a little bit more given how much this guy's made. And so when I called the social security administration, I got a live person and they looked at my mom's situation and, and they said, oh yeah, you're right. You know, this this husband actually made enough that we can bump your mom's so security up a little bit. I said, oh, that's great. And, and then I said, and you know, I'm just curious, <laughs> not for my mother, just as a, as a taxpayer in America. I'm like, okay, so the Social Security Administration didn't expect I was going to make this call. All of a sudden, we need a little bit more money than, than was currently on your radar. Like, where is that coming from? And the woman on the other phone said, oh, the, the government just makes the money. And I kept trying to, yeah, but like how and where's, oh, no, they just make it almost like it's sort of this magic money tree that yeah. they just go and pull off. Of, right. And, and this is this is the Social Security Administration. Like this is a branch of the government that has to fund people. Right. And they have this, <laughs> this magical thinking. Right. Right. Well, I mean, come on. Look, if you're working, no offense to the, look, you know, thank goodness we have people that work at the Social Security Administration, those type of things. But they're average Americans that got a job. They don't understand, you know, we don't teach economics and, you know, finance and these type of things in school to any great degree. We teach the very basics, right? We teach people basic economics 101. Okay. You know, move along with whatever else you're doing. But, you know, in terms of how money is, you know, how money is made, where it comes from, all money comes from debt, ultimately. And and so, you know, if if that's where it's coming from, this is the problem that, that people have is that, the average taxpayer thinks the government just makes this stuff and, you know, that's okay. And this is one of the huge, by the way, this is one of the huge, huge fallacies of Stephanie Kelton and modern monetary theory, which was tried and failed miserably. Uh, so we tried modern monetary theory and it just completely fell on its face. And the, the reason that modern monetary theory is flawed, it's basically under the premise that the government's debt is somebody else's asset. And that's not true entirely, because if that was the case, if every time the government went into more debt, everybody else would just be getting richer and richer and richer. And that's just not how money works. And, you know, yes, the debt of the government is an asset of somebody else who's expecting to be paid back by that asset. But remember, they spent money to buy that asset. So the, it wasn't just a transfer of, oh, here's a million dollars in debt and I'll just give it to Adam. Now he's got the million dollars. No, Adam had to spend a million dollars to buy that piece of debt. And that's how the government got its money to spend what it needs to spend. And, and, and so the, the big fallacy here is that there's, and yes, on an accounting ledger, if I'm just, you know, when you're doing a basic accounting for every credit, you have to have a debit and it always equals zero. So on an accounting statement, the idea of Debt being somebody's asset makes perfect sense because I have to have a positive and a negative to make it equal zero. But that's not how it functions in the economy. And that's the thing 
that everybody keeps missing about the importance of debt over time is that it erodes the ability, and particularly when the debt is non-productive. Now, if we were only spending debt on productive investments, we were out every day building Hoover dams that were generating power that people were going to pay for for the next 150 years, or the Tennessee River Valley Authority. If we were doing that kind of debt issuance and building productive uh, you know, uh, 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 investments, that would pay for themselves over time, I got no problem with that. That's great, that's great business. And I'm all about leverage in the right way, but we don't do that. I mean, we could be spending, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act is a good example. If you would have taken the 1.7 trillion and then rebuilt the, the, the entire nation's power grid, which is desperately needed, that's awesome. I would have been, I would have voted for that in a minute because everybody's gonna pay to use that power grid and they're gonna pay fees and taxes and revenue that's going to pay all that debt back. Plus, once that $1.7 trillion is paid back, it becomes a profit revenue stream for the government. I'm all for that. I'm not for spending money that just sends checks to households because that is not productive. And once the money's spent, who's going to pay it back, right? Everybody else that's a taxpayer. So this is kind of where I'm going with this. And then, folks, I'm going to get back to the market stuff with Lance in just a second in terms of what, what the market's been up to. But um, you and I have talked about that that quote um, by Teitler, right? Uh, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the majority discovers it can vote itself largesse out of the public treasury. And, and there is part of me that worries me that we're at that phase right now. Oh, we, we passed that phase 20 years ago. It may be, but I mean, I think like, you know, again, uh, guys like you and I and many of the viewers here who are projecting outwards and saying, okay, because of decisions we're making today policy-wise, we're going to have repercussions X at some point in the future. Um, if we're just continuing to lean into this sort of magical thinking of, look, you know, as long as we continue to issue money and issue stimulus and write the checks and, uh, and nothing bad happens tomorrow, right, today, then, you know, we'll be fine tomorrow. Um, that may last a lot longer than people can imagine. And so it could be this, this basically bare steamroller, right? That just that, that the 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 prudent and and the logical and forward-thinking people, you know, they got steamrolled 2009 until 2021, right? Yep. Because there was just such this this inexorable flood of QE that just kept the system propped up. You know, are we back to that going forward? It's TBD. You know, personally, I think that there's more cracks in the system this time and we might not be able to get there. But but to your point, you always have to be very open to the contra uh, of your primary thesis happening. Right. And you've been very good over the past year of saying, hey, folks, we may actually not be in a bear market. You know, until we see certain indicators, we're in the correction of a bull market and don't discount the bull. And the bull has come back this year to, to you know, it's been painful. For these yeah. bears and as i've just been talking about the tra trajectory we're seeing here you know it doesn't seem it's not showing any any signs of uh of abating anytime soon now obviously it could but i mean you you got to play the market you have right now and if you're just hunkered down in uh in you know cash or if 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 you were aggressive and said look i i i believe the bear's coming back tomorrow and you went short i mean you are really feeling some pain right now and look, and this, and this is the biggest mistake that we make as investors is, you know, just, and I, I know you're going to interview Dan Ariely here uh, soon, and that's going to be a fascinating 
you know, interview to watch. And I certainly encourage all your viewers to watch it because the, you know, from a psychology standpoint, this is the biggest mistake that all investors make. And, and think about this for a moment. So I wrote an article recently talking about, you know, that we haven't had as many secular periods as a lot of people think, because if we talk about full market cycles where we do a mean reversion evaluation, there have only really been three major cycles since 1900. And this is a little bit different way to look at, at the markets, but right now we're still in a long-term secular market that began in 1980. And this and the importance about this is all about the psychological choices we make. So think about this for just a moment is that if, the, and I'm, I'm gonna write an article, I'm gonna write another article on this soon because when you take a look at the financial statistics of society today, 80% of Americans have less than $500 in the bank. You know, we've been through all these numbers numerous times. Uh, the average person's up to their eyeballs in credit card debt. It's just financially not great. The, 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 the backdrop of, you know, this great capitalistic system we have is not great because we've just made bad financial choices year, you know, decade after decade, really since 1980, when we de deregulated the financial industry and really kind of unleashed the financial industry on the on just the average consumer. And we just say, hey, let's, you know, a little bit of credit's great. Here's a credit card. If you can breathe and fog a mirror, here's another credit card. Let me give you a low interest mortgage so you can buy a house you really can't afford. And you have the national realtor saying, hey, buy this house, you really can't afford it, but we won't tell you that. You know, and so we did all these things to vastly increase the lifestyle of Americans and the expectation of what lifestyle should be, but we never really explained to them what the financial consequences of all this are. But back to my point of the markets, if the markets functioned and if investors did what they were supposed to do in the financial markets, then we wouldn't have 80% of Americans, you know, being broke. The vast majority of Americans should be exceedingly wealthy given the amount of wealth that's been created out of the stock market. Why isn't that the case? Is because investors consistently do everything wrong. They, they buy high, they sell low, they, they do all the things that, that Dan Ariely was going to talk about from a psychological basis. You know, they chase returns, they chase markets, they, you know, they try to do loss avoidance and, and all these type of things. And all of that just compounds one mistake after another and keeps them from generating money. Um, you know, I get a lot of people email me. It's like, I've got eight different advisors because I want diversification. Worst thing you can ever do, you should have one advisor managing your money, period. Because once you get eight people, you got too many cooks in the kitchen, you've got overlap risk, you've got, you're diluting your returns, you're increasing your fees, and it's just going to lead to a very, very bad outcome, ultimately, in terms of your returns over time. Uh, another thing I get a lot of emails on is like, well, I've got a whole bunch of money sitting in cash. I'm going to put a little bit in the market just in case it goes up. Well, now you've got a whole bunch of assets that are deeply underperforming inflation. And you say, well, I'll just put it in the market when I feel good about the market. Well, the problem is you're never going to feel good about the market because like right now, the markets are going up and you're going, oh, I don't want to be in the market because it's going to crash tomorrow because Adam said so. Um, you know, this, and so we just, keep, we just keep repeating these mistakes over and over again that keep people from building wealth in the markets. And this is why you've got to step back from all this and say, look, what's the market doing? It's going up. I need to be in the markets. I know all this other stuff is sitting out there and I'm certainly aware of it. But if you're driving down the freeway, right? And the road's clear ahead of you and you go, you know, a, a car could come just swerving over the lane any minute and kill me and my whole family. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop, <laughs> right? Even though you can see a mile down the road, 
you're worried about this one event happening. It would be terrible. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that that would be a horrible, terrible thing to happen, but you've got so much visibility down the road. If the car is coming at you and start swerving in your lane, you can move over and you can get off the road. I mean, you have to, you know, drive yourself into a ditch, but that's better than getting hit, you know, head on. But you have visibility. You have visibility in the markets right now. And so what you've got to do is set aside all these emotional dramas that you have that's keeping you from investing the right way and and start looking at your money as I've got to put little hard hats on these dollars every day, pack them a little lunch and send them out to make money for me. That's their (laughs) job, right? You got to get your money to work. That's the important thing. Okay. Uh, And I'm just going to say for those that haven't watched, you know, the many videos you and I have shot over the past two years. Yes, you got to put your construction hat on your guys, give them their lunchbox, send them out, had to go make money for you. But you're still doing that, you know, while having their backs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you said you got visibility, if all of a sudden you see some storm clouds on the horizon, you're going to quickly, you know, send these guys some umbrellas. Well, yeah, look, in, look, in anything in life, right, we have rules, right? We have rules for everything. So, um, you know, if you're going to go out work on a construction site, what do they require? They require you to wear a hard hat. They require you to wear safety glasses. They require to yellow, they wear a yellow vest, you know, all these things. I was, well, why do I have to do all this? Well, because we've had people killed from stuff falling on their head. We've had people go blind from stuff flying in their eyeballs, whether while they're welding or cutting or whatever they're doing. We've had people hit by other people because they couldn't see them because they didn't have a reflective vest on. And but that's why we have all these safety rules. And you know, this is why we have all these safety meetings and all these type of things. It's the same thing in the market. Yes, you can invest, but you have to do it with a set of rules and you have to have a, a discipline that you follow and you've got to work on being safe as you do it. And you know, if you start to violate that rule that gets people into trouble, then you got to say, so I'm stopping there. I'm going to go fix that problem. And look, we do that too. We have we have that same problem in our shop. Earlier this year, we were too defensive. We recognized that we were too defensive for the market. We had to make changes. And so we were adding, you know, regional banks uh, right after the crash in March. Uh, we've added uh, small cap, mid cap. We've added to our technology holdings. Um, it doesn't feel great doing it here because you're, you know, just like everybody else. I'm looking at the markets going, this is insane. But I've got to get money made for my clients. That's my job. But I can do that as long as I'm following a set of rules. If things roll over, we start breaking moving averages, we start violating trend lines, we start violating the rules, then I'm going to start taking that money back off the table again. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, look, back to uh, where we are in the markets this week. So Q2 earnings season has started. Yep. Um, What are we learning so far? Uh, Not as bad as we thought. So, you know, one thing everybody was really kind of looking for, and and so, and by the way, two things so far is that mostly we've just had banks uh, up to this point. Now, over the next couple of weeks, you and I are going to really start talking about tech earnings and, um, you know, kind of really what's going on with the rest of the industrial and manufacturing sector of the economy. So far, banks, and but that was the big thing, right? Every you know, after March, we had this big financial crisis with the regional banks when Credit Suisse get absorbed. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Republic National Bank, et cetera. And so everybody was really looking at these regional banks. Yes, um, you know, their earnings came in about in line with expected, some a little bit better, some a little bit worse. But overall, the outlook for the banks was pretty good. Um, you know, if you look through the, the current earnings, 
the forward look on those earnings are actually not bad. And they're certainly not talking about, hey, I've got big credit problems on the horizon. I've got, you know, uh, yes, they're increasing loan loss reserves, which you would expect, particularly with commercial real estate. But we're not seeing massive jumps in, in that. And the prices of, of a lot of these banks um, are already reflective of probably the worst case outcome because of that big decline we had back in March. So these companies are reporting earnings and we're seeing them rally uh, for the most part on their earnings. They're, they've actually been doing pretty good. Uh, from the other companies, you know, it was interesting because we're not hearing a lot of talk. Uh, United Airlines is an example. We're not hearing a lot of talk about, oh, you know, we, you know, last week, just all of a sudden, like somebody flipped the light switch and people just stopped spending money. We're not seeing any of that news. The outlook for earnings going forward and consumer spending so far, and again, we haven't heard from Amazon, we haven't heard from a lot of other companies. Um, uh, Netflix, uh, actually, you know, big subscriber growth, and despite the fact that they put on, you know, these password sharing bans, et cetera, their subscribers increased, revenues have increased, so people are still paying their subscription fees. So far, and again, we're, and again, let me just reiterate, we're really early really early in the earnings cycle. So, you know, what I'm saying right now could all change next week. Um, but so far right now, the outlook isn't that, oh, the economy's falling off a cliff, and, you know, get super defensive. We're, we're just not hearing that yet. Okay. And just as a reminder to folks, um, Michael Kantrowitz's HOPE framework, and actually while I was away this week, we we ran the interview with, with Kantrowitz, H-O-P-E, uh, the P, in the HOPE framework uh, stands for profits or earnings. Um, and again, these are uh, the indicators that sort of show you when you're following into recession. Um, we obviously had seen some weakness in earnings over the past year, um, but what you're saying is right now, still hanging in there. And even the the outlook that we've heard so far from the few companies that have reported so far, not too many warning bells. So far, and look, earnings are down. Right. Earnings are definitely down from last year. If you take a look at uh, the bank earnings as an example, uh, both earnings and revenue are down from this time last year. So um, earnings are definitely weaker because of what's going on in the economy. But what it looks like right now is that we may actually be kind of troughing that earnings base now. And we may start to see an uptick in earnings uh, come next quarter. And that will be kind of that first turn. Now, we'll need economic improvement in order for that to happen. So if the economy starts to weaken substantially, then we're going to see earnings start to come down again. But right now, based on estimates, um, you're kind of looking at probably this is the low point for earnings and we'll see improvement next quarter. And that's kind of what the markets are betting with this kind of recent rally. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, the day in which we're recording this, uh, end of the week, uh, it's an interesting day because it is the, uh, we have a record number of, of expiring options uh, in July. Yep. Um, so it's two, almost two and a half trillion, 2.4 trillion, I think going on right now. Um, and there's a couple of interesting it. things around that, but but let's start with that first. So so yeah, what, what's notable say, about today? I was just say, well, first of all, you have a lot of options expiration, but you also have the rebalancing of the NASDAQ going on. Uh, so the NASDAQ is That's being- right. Please remind folks of that. Yeah, if you can. Yeah. So, and, and we wrote about this earlier, that it's, it's going to be a nothing burger. Everybody was like, oh my God, they're going to rebalance the NASDAQ and take 7% out of the top 10 stocks. And they're going to, you know, and that's really kind of been going all, on all week. But index funds have to rebalance on the day that the rebalancing occurs. And so you could see a little bit of volatility today and Monday. 
uh, particularly in the tech sector. But everybody was expecting this is going to be this kind of waterfall event. We and we wrote in our our daily market commentary uh, on I think Tuesday or Wednesday of this week that it'd, it'd probably be a nothing burger, and so far it's turned out to be just that. Okay. Um... In the midst of all this, okay, nothing burger on the rebalancing. And again, yep. the, the markets were given fair warning of this. So you can safely yep. assume they sort of repriced all this stuff in. Um, the, the OPEX that's going on right now, though, um, there are a couple sort of knock-on effects about it I want to talk about. But at a high level, is that pushing anything around in any material way right now? Yeah, yeah. you know, we're, we're definitely seeing some rotation in the markets. Um, you know, um, over the last, you know, couple of weeks when you and I were sitting here talking, um, we were talking about how the market was really bifurcated. I, I was showing you some sector rotation analysis where you had in the overbought category was tech communications and discretionary. Now everything else was, you know, kind of in the very big oversold area and, you know, was was deep, dark green and meaning they were oversold and all that. And we were talking about the fact that we'd see rotation in the markets from that and here I'll just I'll kind of share just share some updated charts with you here real quick just so you can kind of see the difference now. Um, and again, if you if if you didn't you know kind of see this before, uh, previously in, in these lower right hand areas of oh. this table, everything was red like super bright red, and then everything else was green, meaning it was oversold. Now everything is just super overbought. Wow, look um, at that! Yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah. And then, of course, this is the factors of the market. So this is small cap, mid cap, large cap, uh, international, semiconductors, equal weight, S&P 500, everything. Uh, it was basically arc, large cap and, and you know, big growth up here. That was it. And everything else was over in this oversold, this oversold area of, of the market. Now you can see that everything has now moved up and to the right. So everything has begun to participate as of late. And you can see it also in just the sectors of the S&P 500. Everything has now moved uh, from that deep oversold area, moving up into that upper right quadrant of being overbought. So again, the market breadth has really improved here recently. We've seen a big pickup. And that's part of this options expiration as well that's feeding into that. But over the last few days in particular, we've seen that, uh, tech stocks really underperform. And you know our healthcare stocks and our financial stocks and our utility stocks have been really performing well uh, over the last few days because we were kind of set up, you know, split between this growth of technology and and uh, kind of defensive, more economic centric areas of the markets. And we've seen that big rotation finally occur that we were talking about, you know, three weeks ago. Yeah, although I do want to just underscore, uh, I think I made this point last time. It's not a rotation. <laughs> yeah, it's not that the capitals come out of the overvalued. Uh, parts of the market. It's that it's just pulled the other, it, it's gone into the other part. It, more capital has gone into the other parts. So now everything is over on that overbought yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it just it basically what was happening before you had 33 cents of every dollar going in those top 10 stocks. And basically it was, you know, now it's 10 cents going into the top 10 and, and they've kind of shifted down. So it's just money managers, um, you know, and again, we're moving into a new quarter. This is the beginning of the third quarter. And so asset managers have to get, and look, uh, we were super underweight equity earlier this year. We're now barely underweight equity. Uh, we're about 55% equity out of our 60% target. Um, so us along with everybody else, we've been having to get that money out of safety and into the markets. And that's what's been driving this market has just been this need to catch up with performance, so to speak, and get money allocated and that's been driving the market. 
Okay, so there's there's a lot of implications coming out of all this, and I, I want to bang through sure. a bunch of them, get your reaction to it. One is a chart that I'm going to show here, um, and it's showing that um, that the the dis the strike distribution of uh, options right now is what's called very call sided. Um, so uh, I guess not super surprising, you know, when, when everybody starts feeling really optimistic about where things are going and prices just keep going up and up and up, people feel comfortable going further and further out the long risk curve, right? Yep. And we've heard over the past couple of years about how, you know, investors who really hadn't got into options in the past were now beginning to really embrace them and they were buying call options on Tesla and meme stocks and all that type of stuff. Um, but if you look at the general distribution of options right now, um, it, it, it is very call-sided is the way it's being described here. And, you know, this is one of those things that that does make the market more vulnerable to a downside risk because you've got everybody on the long side of the boat and, and they're levered long with these mm -hmm. options. Yes. So how big an issue is this? Well, it's a big issue, actually. And and I wrote an article uh Tuesday, I think on the website and you know, here, let me just look it up real quick. Give me one quick second here. But I wrote an article kind of relating to the same thing. Right now, what we have going on is basically we have put hate. Nobody wants puts because markets are going up and that makes complete sense. So, you know, as markets continue to improve, why do I, why do I want to have money that's being you know lost and having this put? So obviously the market's never coming down again. So why on earth would I buy puts? And you have everybody kind of piling in to, to long uh, call options because they're betting on the market keep going up. So you have this big bifurcation in the markets at the moment between this put hate and these call options. And, and normally that's what you see near short-term market peaks. Now, let me be very clear here because I don't want everybody going, oh, see, Lance just said a bear market's coming. No, we're going to have a correction. And as I've been saying, we're going to have a three to five to a 10% correction. People are going to come out and say, see, that was a bull trap. The bear market's back. No, you're having a correction within a bull market. And that's what you would expect to occur. And right now you've got a lot of people on the long side of this, you know, kind of call option basis, all betting on markets are going up. Nobody wants puts. And that would, that is a great setup for that correction because retail investors are all, and even professionals are generally always on the wrong side of the boat at extremes. They're right in the middle, but at the tops and at the bottoms, generally investors are wrong uh, on a regular basis. Um, let me show you a couple of charts from uh, this article that I wrote um, earlier this week as well, because it feeds right into this. Um, uh, this. This article is talking about the VIX because we have the VIX running at extremely low levels now. And everybody's been going, well, when's the VIX going up? The VIX has got to go up eventually. Well, we have a couple of things going on. Um, and what the VIX tells you, there's an inverse relationship between volatility and between investor sentiment. And so if I take a look at retail and, and institutional sentiment on stocks, um, that is, you know, kind of, and that's this black line uh, on this chart, that's been rising very sharply. So retail investors and professional investors are getting very optimistic about stocks. The top line is an inverse, is an inverted chart of the VIX, right? So the VIX is approaching a very low level. So, but if I invert it, what you can see is, 
is there's a correlation between investor sentiment and low volatility levels, exactly what you would expect that to be. Um, and so when we can, we, we can make a composite out of this, and so the red line is a sentiment and inverted VIX composite index. So I just put those two together, created one composite index and overlaid that relative to the S&P 500. And lo and behold, what happens is, is that when markets are, and when investors uh, are extremely bullish and volatility is extremely low, that tends to be near a peak of a, a bull market top. And then you get some type of correction. Could be minor, could be three to 5%, could be 10%. Could be 20%, kind of like what we saw during the Fed taper tantrum and the Brexit issues back in 2015, 2016. So we're in that range to where you should expect, and because of this very bullish attitude of investors, that you should expect some type of correction. Here's just the VIX relative to the S&P. Again, you see the same thing, very low levels of the VIX tends to you know, correlate to short-term peaks in the markets. And that tells you that we're there. And look, low volatility begets high volatility. And whenever you have a period of low volatility, you are going to wind up with a period of high volatility. And what's interesting is, is that really since 2008, but particularly when we started quantitative easing three with Ben Bernanke in 2013, when he was afraid of the fiscal cliff and we needed to come in with all this liquidity, we have now shortened those periods of low volatility versus high volatility. And they're occurring a lot more regularly now. And this is because of the dysfunction of the markets because of liquidity. You know, we're no longer working on fundamentals and we're no longer working on valuations. We're simply working on liquidity. And these ebbs and flow of liquidity are now creating these periods of high and low volatility much more frequently. And this is what's becoming a much bigger challenge for investors is having to deal with that. Um, this last chart is basically that same composite index of sentiment and volatility overlaid against Fed funds. And what you'll notice is, is that when Fed funds tend to rise, so is that index until it peaks. And again, as we talked about before, eventually these Fed funds are going to, to rake into the economy, slow earnings down, and we're going to have a, 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 you know, a kind of a realization of you know, this lag effect on the economy, but that could be 20, late 2024, could be 2025. A recession risk is still sitting out there, but it could be a lot longer out there than you think. But that would also correlate back to this, this high volatility, this low volatility environment with this high sentiment environment, and it just hasn't fed through yet. Okay, I'm really glad you brought those charts up because that's exactly where I was headed with this. Um, VIX, as your charts have shown here, is at a trailing 12-month flow, right? Um, so, you know, your charts just did a great job there of showing how, hey, low volatility generally begets higher volatility, which means at some point, to the extent the VIX as a measurement of volatility still works, um, you know, we should expect an upwards surprise in it at some point in time. Um, there was a chart that I'll, I'll put up here that shows that um, if you look at uh, the realized uh move performance, uh, the, 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 the move in a stock following its earnings release uh, that it actually made versus what the implied move was um, relative to volatility readings. Um, it's the highest it's been since Q3 of, of 2020, or sorry, 2008, right? So the last time we saw this sort of imbalance between how things were supposed to move versus how much they were moving um, was back right before all the wheels came off, right? So it's another one of those indicators that just suggests that 
volatility is really mispriced right now, which is what I think most of your, your chart said. So yes, we should all, you know, basically have an eye out for the status quo changing, right? That's what that basically says to us. But also, and you said this earlier, Lance, um, uh, you know, you use the term put hate, right? Everybody loves calls right now. <laughs> Nobody wants puts. You know, puts, I guess is the right way to say this, uh, may look very cheap right now. Yeah, they are and very so cheap. So if you want to buy some downside, you know, we, we've just spent all this time <laughs> talking about how this market is just grinding higher for all these other reasons. But if you believe even your, you know, hey, there might be a three to 10% correction in here, right? This may be a really good time to buy some, I don't know, mid-dated puts, right? I actually had to, I won't name them because they, they didn't give me permission to, but, but one of the guests that has appeared in this channel not that long ago emailed me the other day and just said, I can't believe how cheap uh, January 2024 puts on the S&P are right now. And yeah. so- you know, does it make sense to maybe think about buying a little bit and just saying, hey, look, it's just insurance, right? In case that, this market that, that, that's it. I mean, and so we were we actually were running the same exercise um, for our platinum accounts uh, just last week. And we were running out numbers. And, you know, you can spend 20 to 30 basis points of the portfolio uh, to hedge, you know, roughly about 10 percent of your equity risk. That's pretty cheap money. And, and so, you know, and especially you start looking out into you can go out as far as, as June of 2025. I mean, you can get you can really buy yourself some time to allow the lag effect of the Fed policy hikes and all this to play catch up. But you need time. You know, the problem with buying puts uh, in a momentum driven market, which is where we are now, if you buy the January 2024s, you're probably going to lose your money um, because we're going to have a little bit of correction this summer. We're going to rally into the end of the year because that's just what statistics and technicals tell us. Um, and so you buy a January 2024 put, that's probably going to expire worthless. Um, and, and typically, it's what happens with options. And in February, it crashes, right? And so yeah. you just bought a little bit more time. You're okay. But, you know, look, I, I, is there, there is there a risk here this market's going to have a, another 10 to 20% correction at some point? Yeah. It absolutely will at some point. The problem is, you know, we just don't know when. So if you're going to buy put options, you need to buy a lot of time and you need to, you know, and again, people are going to make a lot of mistakes. They're going to buy way out of the money puts because they're super cheap. And then if the market can decline enough to kick those into favor, then you'll make some money. But odds are you have this time decay of premium over time. So You've really got to buy. You've got to be able. You got to be willing to spend some money, buy closer to end the money puts, hedge your portfolio with a lot of time. And if you're really worried about a big, you know, big downside, you know, break, um, then you know, buying some insurance certainly doesn't doesn't hurt. But the mistake that investors make is twofold with options: is they buy them and then they buy them back when it doesn't immediately start to work. So they wind up wasting more money. Or they don't buy enough time, and then the event they expect to occur occurs after the option expires, and they didn't buy a new option because they just lost money on the other option. So again, we go back to Danny Ariely. These are all psychological mistakes. Yeah. So just on this, and I'm not I'm not telling people to make this trade by any stretch. Hey, Talk right. with your with your professional financial advisor. Um, but it does sound like uh, it, 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 it's a good time to buy this type of insurance, given the relative uh, affordability of it. 
Um, if you want to have, if you want to take a position against a, hey, the bear market comes back at some point here, the lag effect really matters, all that type of stuff. Yeah, to your point, you know, go further out, buy yourself more time, especially when things are, are this cheap, right? You're not you're not paying as much for the time premium than you normally are. But even the the January 2024 ones, Lance, I mean, if you if you're thinking, hey, odds aren't bad in the relatively near future, let's say the next one to three months, we're gonna have that steam come out that you're talking about, that 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 smaller correction first that that then will power higher. That's maybe not a bad trade for then. Right. No, it's it's not a bad trade for that, but you've got to buy in the money, and those aren't cheap, right? But they're so, not. But, but they're not that expensive. I, mean, I, I looked they're, at this; they're, they're actually right, relatively no. they're relatively cheap on on where they've been trading, right? Yeah, no, no, they're not giving absolutely. them away, but but I mean, they're, yeah, they're relatively exactly. cheap. Yeah, you're, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna wind up spending some money though, because again, you've got to buy in the money to make it work. But especially when you have a shorter time time frame that you're working on, because you have time to pay a premium, so you've got to buy closer than the money options to make it work. Um, and yeah, it's it's a good trade. But again, you have to measure that against am I am I just buying a position to try to capitalize on the downturn, which maybe I just buy one contract, right? Which won't cost me much in terms of my portfolio because I'm just buying 100 shares of the Nasdaq. Versus, I've got to buy if I want to try to hedge off 30% of my portfolio. Now, maybe talking about a significant sum of money to buy enough options on the contract to hedge that 30% risk in my portfolio. So a lot, you've got to do, it's not, I just want to be clear, it's not as simple as it sounds. You've got to do some math here and try to understand what it is that you're actually trying to do um, when, you, when you make this trade. You know, we're not doing that trade right now because there's not visibility at the moment of, of where we are in the middle of earnings season. And we want, and when we lay on that trade, and we probably eventually will, we want better visibility on what the next couple of months is going to look like. And, and with earnings right now going on, there's too much upward pressure in the markets. And that's going, to, that's going to erode my premium in those options. So if I buy them today, I'm going to wind up eroding a bunch of my premium because of the time decay period. Um, so I want to try to time that entry a little bit better as well. Okay. Um, so you, I think you're making the main point I'm trying to make here, yeah. which is um, there is opportunity here, um, oh, but, you, you, but you've got to be smart in how you pursue it. And But it's a good time to be talking to your financial professional about, right. hey, how do I take advantage of this? And you know, what do we want to, let's set the strategy now. So in case we get the indicators we want, while they're still affordable, we can move when we feel like we've got the odds yeah. in our favor. And and plus, you know, you're going to have to set up margin on your account. You're going to have to get approved to trade options on your account, which means you got to have experience with options trading. Uh, there's a lot of, so, so in other words, if you want to do it, you just can't call your advisor and go, hey, buy me a put option. You got to jump through a bunch of hurdles before you even get to that point. So, Great. so start jumping <laughs> through those hoops yeah. if you decide you want to do this. If yeah. you want to do this, yeah, you need to start getting your paperwork in place and getting your margin account set up and all that. All right. And real quick, just because you mentioned it earlier, um, you said, hey, for our platinum members, what, what makes somebody? No, no, a platinum not, not platinum members. We have a model that we call our platinum model. Um, and it's just a it's a it's a model that we use for um, very kind of just for accredited investors for the most part, but it uses a lot of optionality in it. So, you know, it's just it's one of those things that um, it's just in our in our kind of our suite of portfolio models. We have a model for high net worth individuals that uses a lot of these option strategies. 
Okay, great. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, I've got my typical long list. I've I've crossed three things off of it now. So <laughs> out of like fifteen. So, um, oh, so when you're putting this show together, just pick three. <laughs> I know I should I should, but there's so much I want to talk about with you, and we'll we'll, we'll get through a bunch of this. Um, so I wonder okay. too, in the midst of of this sort of you know heady summer for bulls right now, um, if there isn't a danger of too much of a good thing. Um, and, and one example I mean by that is, um, so hedge funds are actually having a rough time right now. They are, we're seeing a a real increase in forced liquidation, um, what's called market-wide degrossing. Um, and, uh, let me, let me just read this real quick. Uh, hedge fund degrossing is starting to broaden out as fundamental long shirt returns have continued to lag behind market benchmarks due to a sharp deterioration in short side returns. Managers started experiencing meaningful destruction in short side alpha around late June, and this trend has further worsened in July. So this goes to your charts, right? Where everything is crowding into the overbought side, right? So I'm a hedge fund, I've got my longs, I've got my shorts, my longs are going up because I'm invested in those, those magnificent seconds, seven stocks, I'm feeling great. The problem is everything's going up. So all of my, mo- the most shorted stocks are also going up, right? Yeah. So and, it is kind of too much of a good thing here for these guys, right? Well, again, this is this is this is a you know from the investor standpoint, right? This is a lack of understanding between you know what they're what they invested in and what they expect, and you know we're we're seeing this a lot with you know people that you know call us up and they're like, hey, we're interested in you know what you're doing in your portfolio. I'm super conservative. I think the world's going to end, and we said, well, hey, you know we're. You know, we're having a lot of equity exposure right now because that's what our markets tell us. And, and they're like, well, I don't want to do that. And, you know, you know, if you're going to buy a hedge fund, which is long and short, then don't expect you're going to get market related returns. And this is the problem with we go back to psychology, behavior, all this is that investors say one thing all the time. It's like, I'm super conservative. I just if I could just make four percent a year, I'd be super happy. And as soon as the market's up 10, they're like, why aren't we getting 10 percent? Well, because you didn't want to take the risk. So you've got to decide as an investor what you want. But again, this is what happening with hedge funds. People are piling into hedge funds thinking it's like, oh, these guys are going to make us better than market rate of returns. It's called a hedge fund for a reason. It is hedging risk. And if you hedge anything, you are not going to pace the market on the upside. You may do it one year or two years. It's very possible that you have the right exact mix of long stocks and short stocks but you're hedging risk. And so when you hedge anything, you're going to underperform a benchmark. And particularly, you're going to underperform a benchmark that pays no fees, pays no taxes, has no cash, has the substitution effect, has the ability to you know, just rebalance the portfolio in terms of market cap weighting, which doesn't exist in an actual portfolio. None of that does. So you're always going to have a performance differential. And so, but this is what happens is that people go, well, you know, I could just be in an index. And so they pull the money from the hedge fund and move into the index at just about the time that the hedge fund is going to start outperforming again. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But but what I found interesting by this was a couple of things. Um, one, you know, the hedge funds, which finally had a great good year again after a terrible year last year, you know, are, are all of a sudden surprisingly getting destroyed by their short books, right? Uh, The last time we saw this happen was actually right before the COVID crash. Now, you know, uh, like you said, look, it's it's nobody could have seen the pandemic coming. 
but we did see a lot of market indicators that the that that there was something was afoot anyways, and the pandemic was just the the thing that tipped it. Maybe we're at a similar stage here. Who knows? Um, but uh, in this article, there was a really key point made, which said. Um, uh, What's going on is that gross leverage is now literally off the chart as hedge funds scramble to extract every last cent of collateral to maintain their to maintain their same set of net exposure by pushing gross exposure to never before seen levels. Right. So it's forcing these guys just to be uber speculative. Right. Which is a problem because should something happen to the long leg of the popular hedge fund trades, i.e. the AI bubble bursts, it will be, quote, a bloodbath of historic proportions. Yeah, be careful with that. People always say that. And again, great headlines, wonderful stuff. Um, you know, fear sales. Uh, yeah, it'll be bad. Uh, I, you know, honestly, but you know, but if something happens on the AI bubble, that's going to drag down those top seven stocks, and yeah, it's going to pull the whole market down with it. And yeah, you're going to unwind leverage. But you know it's going to be bad for hedge funds because they are very levered up, and that's that's the whole issue with with margin debt and leverage. But hedge funds are very good about seeing. And again, this is why they're in business and why they manage billions of dollars. Ray Dalio uh, is a good example. Um, they have a good they have a good vision about what's coming, and they will they will degross their book very fast uh, and get on the short side of the, uh, of the book uh, when that starts to occur. So they'll take a hit initially. But then they'll start degrossing as they need to. They may. Um, I, I again just want to put it out there as sort of one of these, you know, if we think of the, the market as sort of a house of cards. This is one of the cards that's looking, you know, maybe you're, you're more wobbly here. Um, <laughs> pardon me? You're awfully bearish. <laughs> no, 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 no. Look, look, we just spent a whole bunch. Of, I, I don't feel bad <laughs> pulling up some of the bearish stuff now because we just were super bullish for the I first know, half I of this thing. It's fine. It's fine. I, I'm just, actually skipping over a bullet here I have that says, let's make the bull case once again, because I was fearing we were going to get too bearish too early. <laughs> um, that said, though, can you can you pull up uh, the your chart there of the S&P that we were looking at last time? Like, let's just look at where we are, given the current moving averages and whatnot. Um, uh, yeah. I, I think we're still probably very safely uh, in in bull liftoff territory, oh, yeah. but you'll tell yeah. us. Yeah, no, no, I'm pulling it up here as we speak. Uh, just give me one second and I'll share it with you. Um, because this is actually just a couple of things. There are there are a couple of little warning signs here, so to speak, that you know I think are certainly worth uh, paying attention to. Let me share my screen. Um, so this this first chart, I'll, I'll show you a couple. I'm going to show you a couple of different ones. Um, so this first chart is the the, the S and P 500 uh, overlaid against the the red line is the 50 day moving average, and the the blue line is the 200 day moving average. Uh, the top chart is the relative strength index. And you can see that we just ticked a peak in that relative strength index. And so the market hasn't really declined much yet here, but you are starting to see a little bit of struggle here with the markets over the last couple of days in particular. And, and normally when you kind of have these peaks in relative strength, it tends to align with um, correctional periods. Now, in during kind of the correction we had last year, they were much bigger declines, but if you go back to the previous kind of bull market cycle, um, you know, you would get little minor corrections in the markets that come back down, they'd retest the 50 day moving average, maybe go a little bit below it and then um, kind of rebalance and then, and then go higher from there. So if we're in a bull market um, from those October lows, you should expect this market to come down and retest that 50 day moving average. 
That would also kind of correspond with this bottom chart, which is the MACD. This is the moving average convergence divergence indicator, kind of an oscillator. Um, it would also vary overbought, like relative strength index. And so this this is what's setting us up for this five, you know, three to seven correction somewhere in here. A correction back to the 50-day moving average right now would probably be in that 5% range. So again, very normal with any given year. And that'd actually be a great entry point to kind of add some additional exposure uh, to portfolios on that type of pullback. That's why one reason we're holding a little bit of cash here uh, in terms of just, you know, you know, looking for an opportunity of this pullback to try to get a little bit of, of additional exposure. Just one second. No, anyway, uh, the point is, is simple. It's, it's the Bollinger Band show you the same thing, except it's just simply going, uh, seeing the, the markets have moved to kind of a, a, a two standard deviation level above the 50 day moving average. And we're probably going to get a pullback. But both charts are telling you the same thing. Markets are overbought on a short term basis. Expect a little bit of a pullback here. So I couldn't I couldn't help noticing Lance at the the chart you were showing, um, looking at the fifty day moving average and the two hundred day moving average, um, where they cross, right? Those seem like relatively good indicators of where the market's uh, going to head next, right? So if the fifty day cross, it's, if it's been below the two hundred day moving average, and then the fifty uh, day crosses the chase. Is that the golden cross? I, mean, I, yeah, I can't remember yeah. what those titles are, right? But that basically yeah. sort of says game on, right? Yeah. Uh, and then and then I think we have the death cross, right? Which is when the 50-day drops below the 200 moving average. Right. And if you just waited as an investor for those crosses, to me, that seems kind of like a, a good Pareto strategy, maybe, where it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to catch, you know, I'm, I'm not going to top tick the, the the top or bottom tick the bottom, but I'm I'm going to get the majority of the move that's ahead of me. Am I being overly simplistic here? I mean, it's very no. simplistic, but no, no, it's not. And that's you know, this is an indicator that you know the the golden cross desk cross is an indicator that a lot of technicians use to determine the difference really between a bullish market cycle and a bearish market cycle. And um, you know, we saw the fifty cross below two hundred day in twenty twenty two. It declined. And then once that decline finished, and that was kind of October, you didn't get the October bottoms. But once it turned up and that 50 day moving average crossed above the tuner day, it's kind of been off to the races ever since. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, if indeed this is a good sort of finger to the wind gauge for us, hey, you know, the 50 day is still pulling ahead of the two it's above the 200 day moving average and still pulling ahead here so you know we shouldn't shouldn't have too many worries in the near term until we start seeing that gap start to close a little bit yeah and and also too importantly the slope of the moving averages are very important so when you take a look at a moving average is it sloping up or down and so right now we have now turned that slope of both the 50 and the 200 day moving averages they were sloping negatively last year. And so let's back up, right? What's a moving average? It's just the average price of stocks over the, or some index or a stock price, whatever it is, it's the average price of the stock over 50 days, 10 days, 20 days, 200 days. The longer the time period you have, the better indicator it is to the trend of price, right? So if the 50-day moving average is sloping negatively, if the 200-day moving average is sloping negatively, the trend of the price is negative 
over that time frame. So when you take a look at 2022, both the 50-day and the 200-day were sloping negatively, suggesting the market was in a bearish market. Now they're both sloping positively. Both the 50 and the 200-day moving average are now turning up. That slope is positive, so suggesting that we are now in a bullish trend of rising prices, and that's why we want to participate in the market. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, moving on here, just in the interest of time, um, uh, your colleague, Michael Leibowitz there, who has been on this channel uh, mm -hmm. several times, educating our, our audience about the bond market. Um, he released an article this week basically saying, okay, this is our elevator pitch for bonds, right? And I appreciated him doing that because- <laughs> It was, it was uh, a bet. Pardon me? The, the article was a bet. So Tell us about it. We, we bet each other. So the, the problem that we have with writing reports, right, is that to explain a report, a, a report well, right? And so you've got to start with the premise, then you need to lay out some basic facts, and just getting that part of it done, even before you kind of get to the meat of, of the article and then the conclusion, um, people don't want to read anymore, right? Is you know TLDR too long? Didn't read. They just want a picture and a bullet point, right? That's why Twitter does so well. Threads didn't do well, but Twitter's doing okay. Um, but people just don't want to read. They don't want to put the effort into it. And so when you're writing blog posts. The goal is, is to write something with 900 words or less because people just can't read past 900 words. And so we have to consciously make this effort to try to explain things as easily as possible, but keep it under 900 words. And that can be a real challenge on a complex topic like economics or debt and deficits or the market, right? It'd be really hard. So the challenge was, I bet Mike a beer that he couldn't write an article that was shorter than 500 words and he did it. He got 481 words. <laughs> All right. So he won the bet. So what did, what did he win? A beer. Just a beer. Okay. No, not by the way. Well, I've got a number of those words I just want to read here um, because it was a good just sort of revisitation. And look, you know, when the markets start getting hot, everybody, the stock market grabs everybody's attention. And that's pretty much what we've been talking yeah. about all video here so far. Um, but Michael says the following. Um, if you think, as we do, that the last three years are an economic, fiscal, and monetary anomaly, and presumably, I think he's talking mostly about the pandemic and the unprecedented, ridiculous rescue efforts that followed it, right? That's right. not likely going to be happening on an annual basis going forward. I think it's a relatively safe bet. Then the opportunity to earn 4% or more on the longer term bond is a gift. We think yields will revert to extremely low levels when the pre-pandemic economic and inflation trends reemerge. Negative interest rates are not out of the question. So, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Lance, you know, last year we had a lot, I mean, even before, honestly, before the pandemic, I had people saying, you know, I don't really trust the market at these crazy heights. I just want to get a safe 4%. And boy, if I could do that, I'd do that all day long. Then, of course, we had 2022 and people were saying, oh, my God, if I could get 4%, you know, forever, I'd be I'd be happy, right? I'd, I'd ask for nothing more, right? Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, the markets, you know, the stocks are doing well and people are, are, are leaving you know, yeah. what they thought was their attractive date to the dance for, for somebody that they think looks even better, right? But right. we, we got to be really clear, like a, a risk-free 4% or close to risk-free 4% is in many ways a gift. And if you, you know, if you're, if you're not a speculator, if you're being really honest with yourself about the type of investor you are, 
the, op the market is giving you a really good opportunity here to lock in some very attractive risk-free rates that also have the optionality on top of them that Michael is mentioning there in that, that, that statement, which is if, if policy reverts to if data and policy reverts to pre-pandemic uh, status, which we can make a pretty good argument, it's likely to over time, then interest rates could come down, yields could come down and bond prices could rise pretty substantially. And then you're getting paid nicely and getting some pretty substantial appreciation. So I, I want to give you a chance to speak for Michael here about the, yeah. what the no. market's presenting right now. Well, no, I mean, it, it is. And, and again, you know, this is exactly what I told you would happen uh, last year. I said, you know, everybody's, you know, making a mistake. They're all running out. And they're buying these two-year treasuries to get 5%. And, you know, as soon as the market starts running again, they're going to start selling their bonds to go back into the stock market. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, we're, we're you know, I talked to a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm in all these bonds. What do I do now to get into the stock market? It's like, well, you know, why did you buy the bonds in the first place? Um, you know, this and this is always the problem that we run into. But look, the bottom line is that, you know, yeah, bonds aren't doing great right now because of concerns over, you know, the Fed and everything else. And that's certainly understandable. And there's a bit of a, a, a bit of an imbalance uh, in the markets right now. Stocks relative to bonds, stocks are, the, are extremely overvalued relative to bonds, which are extremely undervalued. So if you're a fundamental investor, you buy bonds all day long here. Uh, and, but what drives, as we've said before, what drives the, the yield on the 10-year treasury is inflation and economic growth. Where's inflation now? Uh, we were talking about 9% inflation last year. We're now down to three. Um, that's going to be heading towards one in the course of the next year or so. Um, you know, you've got economic growth that's right now checking along about 2%, but the overall growth rate of the economy is going to slow back down to 2% or less just because of the debts and deficits. So if economic growth and inflation are running at 2% or less, the yield on the 10-year treasury is going to wind up at 2% or less. And that's going to just track, there's just a long-term correlation between those two because that's what ultimately drives those yields. And so if yields go from four to two on the 10-year treasury, that's a very nice appreciation on bond prices. Plus you're getting your 4% payment. Right. So curious, what, I mean, we're going to get to your trades in a little bit, but, but what are you guys doing right now relative to bonds? Do you just have your position and you're sitting in it? Or are you actually no, no, actively no. gardening right now? No, no, no. We, we've been adding to that bond position. Uh, it was uh, about 8% earlier this year. It's now 12% of the portfolio. Um, it'll eventually be 20% um, as we kind of go further into the year. But yeah, we just, every time we get an opportunistic, you know, kind of a spike in the bond yield because of some Fed announcement or whatever, uh, we step in and buy a little bit more and add to our position. Uh, but that's, but see, this is the, the problem for investors is they're going, well, you know, I'm losing money on my bond side. Who cares? Um, bonds mature at face value. I'm going to get my 4% yield. So I've got no risk there. And this is a long-term play, right? This is something that's going to take two or three years to play out. But in two or three years, you're going to make a whole lot of money by owning bonds simply because of what's going to happen economically. And, and that's, just, that's, that's just simple math. And, you know, you're going to wind up in that position down the road, but you've got to be patient and allow it to work. Okay. All right. Um, and then, of course, you know, bonds also can catch a bid if we end up getting some sort of crisis in the mix, too, which, you know, again, we're, we're saying the market's not worried right now. We may have a big period of, of tranquility ahead of us here after uh, last year's surprise, downward surprises. But you never know. Um, well, and here's and where. The, I, go ahead. And the other thing that, sorry, the other thing that investors make a mistake on is they look at their statement and they go, 
this this position, my portfolio is down, you know, eight percent or whatever. I'm just I'm throwing out a number. So my bond position is down eight percent, and then they go, well, I've lost eight percent of my money. Well, no, you haven't. And plus, you're not counting the fact that you got a four percent return on that from the yield kicking off. So, you know, it's it, we all, investors always kind of look at their statement. They go oh, the capital value, but they never take into account the dividends and interest payments that are coming in. Okay, and let's reemphasize that because that's really important. So, if, if you're an investor who's invested in bonds, and say your advisor has you in bonds, you look at your monthly statement and you say, "Oh gosh, that bond is down X percent. I'm losing money." What you're saying, Lance, is not if it's a bond that you can hold to maturity, right? I, mean, I guess you can hold any bond to maturity, but but I mean, it very well may be coming due in six months, two years, whatever. It's like, hey, it's not that long to wait to get your principal back, and then you're going to get the yield on top of that, and then right. that's the worst case scenario. Right. The right. bond may actually end up, you know, increasing in value if, if conditions uh, continue to improve for bonds. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to bang through a couple of things that could, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say destabilize, but but, you know, we're, we're talking about how the market's not really seeing any any major issues ahead. You and I in the past have spent a lot of time talking about the lag effect um, and what it could uh the surprises, the negative surprises that that could and should bring to the macroeconomic situation, if indeed history is any basis for judgment. Obviously, the markets don't think it is. They're they're like lag effect, schmag effect. We don't care. It's a big nothing burger. Um, but Moody's just released an announcement that U.S. corporate debt defaults have now surpassed last year's total. So we've had 55 so far in the first half of this year um, versus 36 in all of 2022, right? So we still have this, we're still we're well ahead of last year, and we still have half a year to go here. Um, we saw the same with bankruptcies that you and I have talked about. Um, they've almost, they almost have beat last year so far. We've had 340 so far this year, corporate bankruptcies compared to 374 from last year. But bankruptcies are now at the highest uh, as they were. Uh, the last time they were this high was in 2010. Uh, and again, we still have the second half of the year to go from here. Um, but what's interesting is Moody was talking about that, that, you know, this is coming from banks really tightening their lending standards, right? It's become a lot more expensive to borrow. This I thought was really interesting. Uh, a Heritage Foundation economist, Peter St. Ange said, banks are battening down the hatches, hogging their bailout money instead of lending it out. That credit crunch means not only do we get bankruptcies like in any recession, but on top of that, we get a lending wall that cuts off even the healthy businesses. And of course their jobs go down with them. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that, that you know, the support that banks aren't getting, you know, Q QE, we would give the money to banks and then in theory, the banks would go out and lend more because of that. Really not happening this time around, right? Um, you know, again, markets don't seem to care here, but this is, you know, th this is, a potential shoe that could drop here. Um, related to this, uh, another CNBC talking head said, yeah, look at the cost of debt. You could reasonably get debt financing for four to 6% at any point on average over the last 15 years. Now that cost of debt has gone up to nine to 13%. I mean, it's basically doubled, right? Yep. Um, and uh, so Moody's is saying, look, we're not saying this is going to happen, but our models or worst case scenario models show that globally, corporate debt defaults uh, could exceed the record that was set in, in 2008, right? So again, TBD, this is all going to happen, but this all sort of gets placed into our lag effect bucket that nobody's really paying much attention to right now. Um, 
So I got to start winding things up, but anything you want to add to kind of this debt default risk here? No, but one thing we are seeing is, is um, we are seeing defaults, uh, you know, delinquencies on credit cards starting to rise. We're seeing credit card, uh, sorry, auto loan delinquency starting to rise. And uh, to that kind of that, you know, recession risk, you know, kind of indicator thing that we're talking about, um, the rejection rate on auto loans and credit cards are now rising at a pretty steep pace. So in other words, consumers are going to the bank going, hey, I need a loan. They're going, no, don't qualify. Right. And, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but we've talked right. about this, right? We've talked about the danger of that debt saturation wall, yeah. where either the yeah. consumer can't take on any more debt because then they can't service their other debts, or they can't take on any more debts because the lenders just say, you're cut off, buddy. Yeah, exactly. And then one other thing, I've got, I'm have i writing an article on this, uh, I think for either late next week or the following week, but tax receipts um, as a percentage of GDP are falling rather sharply. Uh, that is also a very good pre-recessionary indicator historically, because obviously if you're collecting less tax revenue, that means that incomes have fallen. So on both a personal and a corporate basis. Uh, so that's that's also just kind of tying back all this. There, there's certainly, you know, and I don't want anybody to, to walk away from this going, oh, Lance is just being uber, bear, uber bullish and he's just not paying attention to anything. No, um, you know, please go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, read our articles. We write article after article after article talking about the risk. We're aware of the risk. We, we understand the risk. We evaluate the risk. We understand all this. But right now we have a bullish market that we have to participate with, but we are well aware of the economic and recession risks that are sitting out there. We just think it's now getting pushed out into later next year just because of the momentum cycle of the market that we're in. And that's going to, you know, go ahead. No, good. That's exactly where I was going. So when I sort of pressed you earlier, what you thought was most likely, you said, hey, technically, you know, we're in a bull market and there's sunnier skies ahead. Um, I, I know your position to be more nuanced than that. And that's what you're clarifying right now, where I think yeah. you're saying, look, the technical data is super bullish. I'm going to put words in your mouth. Feel free to rearrange them. The macro data, super bearish. Um, some parts of it getting a little bit better, but maybe some parts of it getting a little bit worse, right? Um, and that net-net, it sounds like you think, look, the piper is going to need to be paid, but that reckoning date's probably getting pushed out of 2023 into next year. Yeah. And, and look, there's look there, there's clearly what's going on. If you haven't taken a look at consumer sentiment lately, right? The University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, I'll spit that out. Um, and even the Conference Board Sentiment Index, if you take a look at it, those have turned up. And you should expect that, right? Consumers are feeling better. Why? Consumers are feeling better, not because they're getting paid more at their job. They're not getting, you know, they're not getting extra vacation time or, you know, things like that. They're feeling better because the stock market's going up. They're looking at their 401k plan and going, oh man, my 401k is up, you know, 6% from earlier this year, whatever the number is. Um, it's up five grand. And so I'm going to go, I, you know, I've really kind of been wanting this new, uh, you know, jigsaw or whatever for my garage tell them a guy, uh, new set of golf clubs, you know, whatever, or I'm, you know, I'm going to be really nice by my wife, a new vacuum cleaner. Uh, don't do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> don't take my advice on that. No, do not. That's the way to spend the anniversary night on the couch. Yep. Exactly. No kitchen equipment, no fitness equipment, no fitness clothes. No, stay away from that. Uh, anyway, but they're feeling better. So they're going, yo, I can go spend a couple of grand here or a grand over here. I can spend $500 over here because my wealth has increased. My brokerage account is up. My, my 401k plan is up. I feel better. That's that wealth effect. So go back to 2010, Ben Bernanke launching QE2 says, why are we doing QE? 
to raise asset prices in order to boost the wealth effect to increase economic growth. So because we're seeing consumer sentiment increase, don't be surprised if you start to see some improvement in the economic data. There's a very good correlation between consumer sentiment and turns in indexes like the leading economic index, the manufacturing indexes, et cetera. So pay attention. Okay. Um, just a quick preview for folks. Um, sentiment, very important to track, as Lance is saying. Peter Atwater is one of the economists who focuses most on sentiment. Um, we'll be interviewing him in just a couple of weeks. So just keep an eye out for that interview when it comes out. Um, all right, Lance, I'm going to have to skip over some of my other potential shoes to drop here. They were all kind of lag effect related um, stats so on the housing market, on uh, commercial real estate, et cetera. Um, so, next just, week we'll, so next week, we'll do lag effect week, right? So Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did it with Michael. I'd love to do it with you. So we'll, we'll do lag effect. We'll also, I did want to circle back to your expected implications from the student loan repayment um, if that if that does indeed go back into effect here, um, I think I think that's the biggest risk we've got. I know you do, and that's I think, why I really I think, want to dig into that. With yeah, you. yeah. I think that is a. I think that I think that. So you know, what is it that that brings the market down? It's something that is unexpected, exogenous event that is not fully appreciated by the markets. And I and I could be entirely wrong, but I think that student loan deal is not being appreciated nearly enough by the financial markets. Okay. So let's earmark that to get into in depth next week. Um, I'm going to ask you about your trades in just a second. Um, real quick, uh, I had some interesting territory we were going to go into in terms of our you know human element that we like to end on. Um, but I'll just pull out, you said the consumers are, are feeling more, um, more optimistic because of the wealth effect. Um, man, they sure are when it comes to concerts. Uh, so Taylor Swift, She's yeah. got her tour going on right now. I don't know if you saw this, but um, the Federal Reserve said her tour alone is boosting the U.S. economy, yeah. <laughs> that the estimate is that uh, it's pumping $5 billion in spending yeah. into the economy. And it's pretty amazing when you think that one individual can be responsible for that much. But I've got a younger daughter who loves music. She's been trying to scheme every which way that she can you know, get her parents or somebody to, to finance a ticket for her and and out here, you know, the nosebleed seats go for over a grand. Um, but they're saying that 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 the average Taylor Swift concert attendee spends thirteen hundred bucks per show on tickets, outfits, travel, and food, right? Which is yeah. when, you, when you think of these coliseums, like you know, yeah. she's playing out here at a sixty thousand person coliseum. You know, if you put an average of thirteen hundred bucks on each one of those sixty thousand people, that is a lot of spending. Well, yeah. And, and again, remember, so how does the economy work? And, and you know, this is very important. And Beyonce is also doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, not really to the degree that Taylor Swift is, but she does her fair share. Um, so you put those two together, you're really good. But, you know, you know, think about all the, you know, so Taylor Swift shows up at Anaheim Coliseum, right? So she's got all of her tour people that she's got to pay, which are also spending money. Then they've got to hire all the people, the security guards and, and you know, all the people to, to work the concession stands and the, the you know, all the gear. And, and there, I mean, just you start going down all the, the hundreds upon hundreds of people. This is not a small event, right? Right. So, and that's just the tour, right? Yeah. And, and this goes to hotels the and the airlines. And yeah. Exactly. And, and so it's all that knock on effect that that, you know, helps keep the economy going. And it's very important. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it, but it is quite phenomenal what you know she is doing. Her her career is quite phenomenal. And uh, it, it, it it's cool. And and sometime we'll talk about how I actually met Taylor when she was fifteen, I think, and just starting out. When I worked at Yahoo, we owned a company called Launch Media, which eventually became Yahoo Music, and it was all about launching new talent. So. My, my girls just can't believe the story where like I was walking across campus to go you know get some food at the cafeteria and there's this little 15 year old girl on this little makeshift stage who's singing and there's probably like 10 or 15 people listening to her and I'm walking by I'm like oh she's not that bad right and who knew back then that would become Taylor Swift but one of the things I was going to talk with you about and we'll punt this to later on but is hey look you know I've I've years ago took both my daughters to Taylor Swift concerts at, at for different birthdays of theirs but I mean, when you get to the point where you're paying 1300 bucks for a concert, any concert, right? But let alone like the nosebleed seat of, you know, some place where you can't even see her as a speck on the stage, right? I mean, it really is saying something about uh, how much we value, you know, a dollar, right? There's some threshold that personally, I think is way below that amount where you're better off just, you know, buying her album and enjoying it, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it, it's it's, you know, you know, it is interesting what, and I was actually having this conversation the other day with my wife, because when our kids were small, you know, we took them to Disney once, right? And it was super expensive. And I'm like, I, you know, I, it's great. They had that experience. My, my daughters were in love with the princesses and, you know, it's the yeah. most amazing experience for them to see the princesses. Um, but we did it one time and I said, well, never doing that again, because that's just way too much money to spend for that. And, you know, but the, you know, it's always interesting to me. People make financial choices, and it is it is always interesting to me what they value more than saving or investing for their future. And right. again, we do this whole YOLO conversation. You know, when you start talking about two people, twenty six hundred bucks, whatever, to go see a concert, you know, you're putting a lot of value on that entertainment. And yeah, I get it. It's, you know, it's, it's super cool. I'm not bashing your decision to go do that. If you did, I'm not talking to you specifically. I'm just talking about in general. It's always fascinating to me, the choices that people make on how they spend money on an experience that is very short lived, has a great memory, but has no follow through effect versus using that same amount of money to do something that could give you a lifetime of benefit. Right, exactly. And that's not really a work. But it's not nearly as fun. <laughs> it's not nearly well, not as fun in the moment, but you know, like yeah. not eating cat food, you know, later in life is pretty yeah. fun too, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, so, I, look, I understand it. I understand it. I'm not bashing it at all. So please don't think that. I'm yeah. just saying I always find it fascinating from a human perspective how we value money, especially money. I, I, I do too. And and I'm bashing it. And this is this is where I want to go later on, you know, next time, whatever we have more time to do this justice. But is um there is a threshold by which I think you are, you're being irresponsible with with your money um, because you're 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 buying something that's not worth the value of, of what you're of how much you're paying, right? And you're diminishing your future prospects as a, a result. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll mention two quick things, and then we'll just wrap up here. One is this: the people who are paying thirteen hundred bucks per show on everything—that's seven hundred and thirty bucks more than their intended budget. Right. Yeah. So these people were going not expecting to, to pay nearly that much, but they're going way over budget when they go there for a whole bunch of reasons. When you're there and you just can't say no or, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, that that's that's not a responsible business decision when you are basically paying, you know, whatever, 150 percent more than than you expected to. 
Um, secondly, and I'll just mention this one, we'll move on, but um, like going to like a, like a major league sporting event now, right? I mean, out here in the Bay Area, if you take your family, say to like, you know, go watch the, the San Francisco Giants play, um, you know, date the ball game for people, even if you don't get expensive seats, I mean, you're still paying somewhere between 50, sorry, 500 and a grand when you wrap in, you know, tickets and parking and the cost of, you know, $18 drinks and hot dogs and stuff like that right and at some point it's sort of like look you're 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 much better off you know economically and enjoying enjoyment like just watching the game from home or even better go go to your local high school baseball team you'll know everybody personally it would be much more emotionally invested in, in the match and you'll spend you know 15 bucks for your family right so you know this this part of like finding value in how you spend your money in, 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 in controlling your personal finances. We're kind of dancing around the, 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 the point here, Lance, is that, you know, there's a lot of people right now that are, whether it's just poor education or they're just not thinking about it, you know, they're ignoring the bottom line or they have magical thinking around money. They're making immediate decisions uh, for some sort of fleeting benefit that are going to come bite them down the road, rant for a different day. Okay, well, let's end on your trades here. What trades have you made over the past week? Uh, the only trades we really made this week, we, we only really made one, and that was we added to our regional banks after the earnings. The earnings came in better than expected. Uh, so we added a little bit of exposure to our regional banks. Uh, in our ETF model, we had a little bit of a regional bank ETFs uh, on top of our normal uh, kind of, you know, XLF kind of financial banking sector that we have as well. Uh, but that really pretty much it. Most of, you know, again, we've already been kind of creeping up our exposure over the last several weeks. Um, you know, we added to our big mega cap stocks. We've added to, um, you know, energy. We've added some other areas. Um, you know, so so again, you know, we've seen this rotation in the markets now that's really kind of helped the performance of the whole portfolio. That's been nice. And so now our next step is really going to be looking, uh, kind of looking in to evaluate where maybe we start reducing a little bit of risk just temporarily for potentially this, a bit of a correction we may see. Okay, great. Be very interested to see next week if you get to that point and would love to see well, what trade you're making. Next week might be too soon. Um, you know, the, the correction could be, probably won't be until August, September. Okay, okay. Um, also too, just over the next couple of weeks, we'll have more data on the earnings side of things too. So right. that'll be interesting to see your, your guys' thought once you have more data. Um, all right, well, look, as we wrap up here, folks, um, you know, part, part of what we're, I was planning on ending here, Lance, um, which did involve some of this messaging about being more mindful of the value you pay for life's experiences, um, are rooted in this experience I just had this past week, having been home both for my, my mom's service, uh, but also reuniting with a lot of old family and old friends that I haven't seen in some cases for for decades, um, weirdly timed the night before my mom's service was my first high school reunion ever. Um, so it got some interesting life lessons out of that um, that I will punt. But um, you know, a lot of these things, a, a lot of the key takeaways uh, that I had were germane to this topic of planning for yourself or those in your life who are entering their senior years, right? And, and really kind of beginning to do end of life planning, right? To make sure that uh, the last years that, uh, that the seniors in your life have, uh, their being is taken care of as best as possible. And also for when they pass on, uh, all the estate planning stuff uh, is 
hopefully buttoned up long before and you don't have a lot of the challenges that honestly the majority of families do because most people don't do estate planning uh trying to figure all this stuff out on the fly which tends to engineer less than optimal outcomes for everybody the senior themselves the family themselves um and you and i've been talking about the fact that we were going to line up an end of life uh webinar end of life planning webinar for the wealthy on audience uh you've been working with uh, the folks on your team uh, richard and danny uh to make that happen we've now put in a date in the calendar so just to let folks know so you guys can mark your schedules uh that free end of life webinar is going to be held on friday october 20 sorry august 25th at noon eastern 9 a.m pacific folks will remind you as we get closer to that date but i did want to let you know we said we were going to lock a date in we did thanks for making that happen lance um, also, just real quick, I mentioned one or two of these, but we do have a really good, now that I'm back, you know, I just had a week of replays so that folks had some content while I'm gone. We're back to creating uh, new daily interviews going forward, and we've got a great uh, set of experts lined up for the coming week. Um, we've got Art Berman. We're going to be talking about the oil markets and what's going on there. Um, I've got Dan Ariely, who I'll be recording later on today. Uh, Dan is one of the top behavioral economists out there. And if you're not familiar with the field of behavioral economics, totally fascinating. I know Lance is really interested in, in how that interviews goes. Um, I can't wait for it. It's going to be super interesting. Uh, we then have the great Lacey Hunt uh, that I'll be doing an interview with next week. Uh, and then at the end of the week, uh, Stephanie Pomboy is going to be recording an interview with Jim Rickards. Uh, one of the items of focus on that is going to be uh, this potentially new commodity-backed BRICS currency uh, that may be announced uh, in August. So stay tuned for that. Um, as we wrap up here, just want to underscore, Lance has done a great job, uh, both on the bullish and the bearish side in, in today's discussion, talking about um, all the things that a, a you know really competent, experienced, seasoned financial advisor has to keep in mind when they're trying to charter the client capital they have uh, to save passage through all that might be uh, getting thrown at them this year. Um, highly recommend that you work with a professional advisor, uh, financial advisor who can do that for you. If you've got a great one, uh, great, stick with them. They're rare. If you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, perhaps even Lance and his team there at Real Investment Advice, uh, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. We'll set you up with one of those. Again, these free consultations uh, don't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with these guys. They just offer it as a free public service to help folks get positioned as prudently as possible for whatever might be coming down the pike. Um, and if you enjoy uh, these weekly market recaps as much as Lance and I do, you're glad that we're back in action. I'm, I'm, I'm back from, uh, from my time away. Lance is uh, back from his time in the penitentiary or wherever he's been. Uh, do us a favor. Uh, please support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little blue icon right next to it. Lance, as usual, I'll give you the last word. That's it. Uh, we'll see what happens next week with earnings, and we'll be back next Friday. All right. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.